This is the Life-Changing Conversations podcast, brought to you by Neil Shah, Chief De-Stressing Officer at the Stress Management Society and produced by Change Your World Events. Join in the conversation by visiting our LCC podcast Facebook page. Like, comment, share, and tell us what you think. Hi, and welcome to Life-Changing Conversations with me, Neil Shah. I set up the Stress Management Society in 2003 to help individuals and companies recognise and reduce stress. My dream is to create a happier, healthier, more resilient and sustainable world. And my guest today is Sarah Milne Rowe. She's from Coaching Impact and she's the author of The Shed Method and has a very similar vision to myself. Sarah, it's so great to have you here. Let's start by hearing what you do. Tell us about your work as a performance coach. So my work as a performance coach is working with, on the whole, leaders in corporations and sometimes their teams too, to help them be better in whatever way and however they describe better for them. But on the whole, they're they're wanting to um, achieve more, um, either as a person or in their corporate life. Um, They would like to learn faster at it and they'd like to live better. Um, so that um, is my role really, is to be in service to them, helping them achieve that and trying to find uh, the most useful way to do it. So that's in a nutshell, I think, what I do. And how would you do that? You said the most useful way to do that. So, so tell me about yeah. the, the how of what you do. Okay, so, so the how is trying to interrogate with them the way they learn and also interrogate with them the most useful levers Mm -hmm. to put the effort to um, achieve what it is that they want to achieve. And I suppose for me the the word performance coach is important because as a child performance was really part of my whole Mm -hmm. upbringing and my whole sense of purpose was based around performance. I loved drama, I loved music, I loved dance particularly. Um, and so my whole background was wanting to get better at it. Mm-hmm. And I was inspired hugely by teachers that helped me do that. And um, the ones that did it the best were the ones that actually uh, had a combination of positive push, positive challenge, fun, mm-hmm. um, and got me. So I need to, to stop you on that point because you've used two words in the same sentence, teacher and fun. Mm. For me, the two never really went together. There was one teacher, and I think mm. everybody's got that one teacher that inspired them and, and, and drove you to do better because they believed in you. Yes. But my experience at school wasn't fun. Mm. Uh, it was actually a, it was a pretty terrible experience. My teenage years was probably the most challenging years of my life. And I just really want to get a sense from you, why do you feel that that's important? That you know, If we want to achieve performance, fun needs to be a part of the equation. Yeah, well, because I think um, improving your performance and however you might describe that has to be fun. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just too much hard work. And mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that you asked me about that because I went into teaching. I started my whole my career as a teacher because of these inspiring teachers that impacted me. Mm. Um, and I decided I wanted to work in possibly very challenging schools in London, comprehensives in London. And, um, and I knew and learned through... I mean, 12 years, basically, that I could only help young people, mm. most, a lot of whom had very challenging backgrounds, if they felt, A, there was some, some, it was worth it, mm. but B, it had to be light, it had to be fun. It, we had to find a way forward that was enjoyable. And like you, I suppose, because I had some models of teachers that had done that for me, I believe that that had to be at the basis of, of being it for others. So it was trying to find um, that that way into those different individuals. And sometimes, you know, there's 30 people in your class, you're trying to find, you know, what motivates each individual within that class. It's, it's, yeah. it's hard. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, the basis of setting up performance uh, coaching impact came from an inquiry of, you know, as a form teacher, not, I, I taught drama, but as a form teacher, I, begot, I got really fascinated with why, you know, a kid would be naughty, they'd be put on a report. You'd probably remember that. I was on a report <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and so at the end of each day, they would come in and have to talk to me and say, look, I need to look at their report. And what I found really interesting is that this one individual who was standing in front of me at that time would have a report. And in two lessons, this person had been fun, great, achieved loads, pleasure to have in the class. Then within the next hour, the report would be absolute disgrace, had to send them out with or her out within five minutes. 
and I, I thought, you know, how can that, that, that individual can't change dramatically, obviously it had changed dramatically in that time, but what was the teacher doing? Mm. What was the teacher doing in that moment um, that enabled the best of that person to come out? So I did a little inquiry, Neil, instead of sitting giving them detention, I sat and used to talk to them in detention and say tell me tell me who are the teachers and the lessons that you want to go to and what are the ingredients in those lessons that pull you towards them mm. and I mean I suppose they fundamentally told me um, three things mm -hmm. they told me that if the, there was something about the teacher that was that had a passion for their subject and it was contagious and there was something in the way that they wanted to teach that subject that they wanted to catch which is certainly my experience that's what I, I wanted um, and they, talk, they talked about it in very different ways. So it wasn't necessarily all singing or dancing, these teachers, but there was something in their passion for their content that they wanted as well. So that was one thing. Now, again, you're talking about from an educational perspective. I am, yeah. What's interesting, for me, the same thing translates into the working environment. A yes. lot of people don't associate work with fun. Okay. And, you know, swap the teacher out for a manager. And again, you've got the same experience. So you've got people that literally go through life and they turn up for school, they turn up for university, they turn up for college, they turn up for their work, and they're miserable and they haven't got people around them that inspire them. And I think that this is something that we're starting to see is changing because you've got younger generations that are like, well, we're not gonna part with that. I'm not gonna go to a job if I don't feel valued, if I don't feel like I'm a part of something. So now we're forced to have to look at this because in the past you yeah. could have got away with it. Yeah. Um, because people would have just done their job because I need the money. Well, now you've got a generation that don't buy houses, don't buy cars, and have a very different outlook on life. And we're not even talking about millennials, we're talking about mm. the generation underneath them. That, mm. You know, this is the, the, the generation of, in two years, taken veganism from 1% to 7% in the UK. It's tremendous, like, how much that they're kind of uh, promoting and driving change in the country, because, mm. and not just in the country internationally, because they live in a different world than we do. Mm. They're the ones that, you know, are forcing companies to make decisions around plastics and the environment and the yeah. rest of it because they're voting with their feet. Yeah. So I think now we can't afford to ignore this anymore, that we do need to, 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 to look at the fact that if we are not working to create a world that people want to be a part of, they're going to go off and create their own. Yeah, and I think you're touching on there something around purpose as well. Absolutely. Which, um, which I think is uh, a force that is... Is, uh, that is hard to um, tap into when you're constantly busy and trying, you know, and, and you're not giving yourself time to think, why does this matter to me? Yeah. Um, why does this matter to the people that I'm working with? And that is really sat at the heart of everything that I learned working in the schools that I w uh, worked in is, you know, I, I had to get into their world to understand why this mattered to them. You know, why, in my subject area, why, why was drama even relevant to half of these people? Um, and I, if I couldn't make that connection to understand A, why it mattered to me, but B, why I felt it could matter to them, it was much, well, it was a less enjoyable job for a start. Mm -hmm. And um, people didn't move forward in their lives. Um, so, so that whole idea of passion and, and how do you bring it to what you do was a really key ingredient in that inquiry with these young people. And I agree with you now when I'm working with corporate people, it's the same sort of thing. And there's, there's two really powerful words you use there, passion and purpose. Yes. Um, I feel that for, for far too long that was kind of very much lacking in the educational sector and then in the workplace. Yeah. But obviously with, you know, Simon Sinek's book, Start With mm. Why, and, uh, you, you know, the, 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 the technology companies that literally changed the landscape of the, of the business environment, you know, companies that didn't exist 20 years ago are now the biggest companies on the planet. And the, the companies were the biggest companies on the planet for the best part of 100 years have fallen out of the top 10 so they don't know what's hit them. Yeah. The likes of the GE and the Fords of the world that yeah. did dominate the business landscape for so long and started to realise that if we don't start looking at purpose and passion and, and, and ensuring our people feel valued, then they're just not going to want to work here anymore. Yeah. And it has two, and it ha and it has two impacts. It has one on you as the leader or as the person that's you know got, got some sense of control over of how of the values of the company mm. but it also has a massive as you've just said impact on others mm. so yes yeah, so purpose and passion was one ingredient that I learned very strongly from from that inquiry mm -hmm. the other one Neil was they wanted to work with teachers that were doing something interesting and creative with the content mm -hmm. so it wasn't just um, worksheets or you know <laughs> the usual look at number page three on your book it was thinking about how do I craft this content that actually has an impact on these young people. Uh, and they, f they could feel that. Mm. They knew that about these teachers, that they'd put some effort into thinking about how they can bring this to life and make it relevant. 
Um, and the third thing was they felt significant with these teachers. Mm. Uh, and again, that's that's so important to feel valued and significant. That's the work we do with our with, with the clients that we work with. That's one of the key questions we get into our employees: Do you feel valued at work? Mm. And how many people don't feel valued? And I guess that kind of brings me on to there was something that happened for you that got you to the point where you decided that you needed to do what you do. So tell, tell me about what got you onto the path that, that, to, to, to do what you do today. Hmm. Well, first of all, I got a break because I got pregnant. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and that is always wonderful when you get a forced break because it helps you think, okay, what am I doing? What do I, what do I want to do? I loved, absolutely loved teaching, Neil. I still feel in my heart that's what I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt there was more to do yeah. And and by for, by having to step away from what you're doing, you're often put into a place of so what next? And pregnancy for me gave me that natural break. Mm-hmm. Um and and I I I come from a family where nobody is an entrepreneur. Everybody has had well they were mostly teachers or they or they were nurses really or they had a job that mm-hmm. they were trained a vocational job they were trained to do and that's that's what you did. And I suppose in that moment of pause, I just thought, I want to have more impact. I want to hit more people. I want to work with more people. Um, I had a very strong role model in my mother, mm-hmm. which I'm forever grateful for. And she always said, you know, why not? Rather than you Amazing. can't. And um, the why not was, in that moment, was, why don't I just set up a business on my own? I've never done that. I, I don't know if I can. but. But the driving passion for what I wanted to do was overriding the fact that I didn't a had I had some very limiting beliefs about well you, you're not a businesswoman you've got no you've got no examples of people in your life that are business people mm-hmm. um, set up a business who do you think you are Sarah da 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 etc etc mm-hmm. but in that pause moment I thought well I'll tell you what I'll do I'll go back and I'll go part time mm-hmm. which I did absolutely loathed it. I'm too much of a I either do something all completely or I don't and I just couldn't deal with that so. Um, I just, I suppose I just took the risk and thought I'm going to, I'm going to learn more myself. I'm going to chuck some money at doing NLP, you know, just give, mm-hmm. give some tools to myself um, and have a go. Um, and I suppose if you ask me what the driving force was, it was um, facing the you're not good enough right in the face. Mm-hmm. It was having my mother right strongly behind my shoulder, who was alive at that point, she's not now, um, saying, um, go for it, mm-hmm. which is great, having that strong role model in your life. And um, I think I just ha- have an energy to just have a go. Yeah, so it's interesting. I hear your story, and it's kind of, it's like my story, uh, pretty much the same. I had my dad, sadly, he's not here with us anymore, that was very much there uh, in support. Um, and that, yeah, like, give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? And mm. I think there's a lot of people out there that will have this sense that there's more to life and there's something they can apply themselves to. We, we're all born with an innate skill, ability, passion, desire, that what the Japanese call the ikigai, where your purpose, passion, reason for existence, your vocation, it all kind of comes together. Mm. But sadly, due to the challenges of life and needing to pay the bills and societal pressures and cultural um, bias and all the rest of it, a lot of people never really get to explore the truth of who they are. And mm. For me, this path in life is all about authenticity. It's about discovering the truth of who you are. Because mm. most people go through life and you know you get to the end and it's like, I don't actually know who I am. Mm. I know the stories, mm. but underneath all of those stories that I've developed through my lifetime, who's the truth of who, who is Neil, who is Sarah? Mm. And it's interesting that you say that because it sounds like you kind of, as you went through this journey, you started to really connect with the truth of who you were and how you wish to express yourself and show up in the world. Which, um, you know, it's great that you did that. Yeah, and you start joining the dots backwards, really. Uh-huh. You, you start sort of saying, well, you know, I loved learning. Mm-hmm. I love getting better at something. I love pushing myself so that uh, to see that if I can do it, I find it, I find that very uh, reaffirming and very life affirming. Um, I loved working with young people. I also was surrounded by some teachers that had really were just playing their time out, and I didn't want to be a teacher that was one of those teachers that was just waiting to retire. Um, I I wanted to take that energy and put it into something else mm-hmm. um, but having said that I, I know that I what the shed method and everything that I'm involved in at the moment I want it to go back into schools 
so I feel it's sort of going to do a circle here um, yeah so you mentioned the shed method mm. and this is the approach that you've come up with what is the shed method and why do you believe this is something that's key to success in business and, and life and schools so the shed method uh, the aim of the shed method is to offer a simple framework to mm -hmm. understand how humans work mm. and um, it came out of working with, on the whole, very busy people mm -hmm. who um, haven't got very much time and um, they're asking, well, why do I do that? And I want to do something different, differently. Um, and um, having this approach, which is a simple framework of three brains and five energies, which is not a new concept, but, you know, different people have talked about these things in different ways, but it's just trying to offer a way of thinking, that's why I'm choosing to do that. Three brains and five energies. Yes. Tell me more. So the three brains I talk about in the book are um, the human brain, the dog brain, and the reptile brain. Mm -hmm. And um, the way I briefly talk about it is that on the whole, we think we're operating from our brilliant human brain because it does fantastic things and it's we're the only animal in the world that, that can use and have such a big brain. Um, and it makes us fantastically humanly brilliant. But also there are other two brains that influence the uh, ability for our human brain to be as brilliant as we know it is. And that is the older system of the reptile brain, which is um, looking fundamentally after instinct and urges, mm -hmm. i.e. our basic bodily needs, um, and also whether there's a friend or a foe or, a, mm -hmm. or food or the other F that helps us procreate. I mean, it's very fundamentally basic, but it's got a roadmap to the rest of your body. So it can pick up physical sensations um, mm -hmm. immediately. Um, quickly interpreted by the dog brain, which is the emotional interpreter of that sensation, which it bases itself on old feeling and old memory, and it makes a very quick interpretation of whether that's a good thing or whether that's a bad thing. And if we're not careful, that can boss our ability to bring our human brain into making a choice. Okay. So it's very, very simple way of thinking. We have two fast systems, one slow system. When we're all working together, when those three brains are aligned and working together, it can give us fantastic information about the decisions and the things that we're feeling and thinking. Um, but let's be careful that we're not being bossed by two faster systems. Mm. And so making a choice that is either instinctive or impulsive without a considered choice. And there's also two very animalistic systems, they're very primal primitive systems yeah. that are obviously working with the cognitive function where you can able to, to process and, uh, and rationalize yeah. and think logically. Yes. And that's, that's fascinating. What about the five energies? So the five energies is a way of helping make that system be efficient. Okay. And so the way I've positioned it in the book is that actually the reason it's called the shed method, uh, sleep, hydration, exercise and diet, is not because I'm an expert in any of those four things. It's just that what um, I appreciate is that sometimes I'm working with people who are trying to make quite a tough decision or a strategic decision and actually their shed is so out of sync and out of order that they're in no fit state to make a choice or make a decision. So it's called the shed method to say it's the foundation. So the body energy bit absolutely helps the reptile just uh, get on with the basic needs by feeling fueled. Mm -hmm. Um, with enough sleep, with enough uh, water, with enough exercise, movement, nutrition, nourishment. And when that's depleted, it's much harder to go up the chain. So body energy is the one that I would recommend to look after your reptile brain. And interestingly, you know, obviously the work we do with, with, with stress and mental health, people coming to us looking for solutions and they're expecting some kind of complex psychosocial models around stress and et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is often it's the simplest things that can make the biggest difference. Yeah. And, and as with yourself, obviously, you know, we've developed a number of models. <clears throat> uh, the, the, the book that I wrote, The 10 Step Stress Solutions, yes. actually covers pretty much the same thing and, and a few others. Uh, but, but sleep, hydration, exercise and diet are sort of four sort of foundation pillars yeah. of well-being. Before you can look at kind of the things up the, the hierarchy, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. if we're talking about things like self-realization, self-actualization from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, until you've taken care of the basic needs of survival, of security, of safety, of, of your own kind of physical health, everything else becomes extremely difficult. And you know, if you think of your mental emotional state, the days that you haven't slept well, it, it, you know, your capacity to cope with challenge and stress and pressure significantly diminishes. Absolutely. Something as simple as sleep can make such a big difference. However, when you're giving people such simple solutions, they overlook it. It can't be that simple. The reality is it can. 
It can mm. be. And, and um, you know, we encourage people to be a scientist on their own behaviour mm. um, and just get do a little bit of curious interrogation on, you know, what makes a difference in terms of the way that you feel, but the way the decisions that you want to make, the choices you make. Um, so, yes, yeah, so to go, so go back to the energies, there's the body energy, then there's um, mood energy. So in terms of the dog brain, you know, what's the most useful mood energy to help you be your best or make the most useful choice? And typically people use words like calm, appreciative, um, positive, solution-focused, light. Um, so if that's the case, how, what are your mechanisms, what's your practice to actually choose your mood? And mm. I believe you can choose your mood. Um, but you can only choose your mood if you're fed underneath here. It's much harder for me to choose my mood if I'm feeling tired, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, so it's looking at the way that the mood, the, the energies, and if you pay more attention to the energies, how they can help the system of the three brains be really effective together. So body energy first impacts your ability to choose your mood, mood energy. Mm -hmm. um, then you can apply your mind energy, which the human brain needs because it makes it brilliant to focus, concentrate, sort problems out, mm -hmm. think creatively, listen, really listen. Um, that's all a mind energy mechanism. And um, if have you got enough mind energy to focus on what really matters to you is, is helped by whether you're fueled and whether you're in the most useful mood. So mind energy to apply the focus that you need. And then the other two energies that are like little trump cards that you can play to boost it up is people energy. Who are you, you know, the energy you're receiving and giving to other people. Um, are you around people that boost you? Um, are, are you a booster? Uh, are you around people that drain mm -hmm. the hell out of you? Um, are you one of those people that drain the hell out of others? You know, just the, the whole thing about, but yeah, the whole people energy is unbelievably um, underestimated, I think. Um, and then finally the purpose energy, which, which we've been touching on a little bit, but it's the one that can trump. I think purpose energy can trump mm -hmm. um, body energy for a limited amount of time, Neil. So it's the time when you, you stay up all night because your child's sick or someone you love is unwell, or it's the energy that gets the refugee status asylum seekers into mm. boats that you, they know is prob are probably not safe, but the bigger purpose beyond self-interest is, is bigger than that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's looking at how to help people manage their energy to maximise the efficiency of their system. So Sarah, you believe everyone should have a coach, mentor, role model at each stage in life. Tell me about that. What's your belief behind that? Why do you believe people need a coach? I do have a belief that we can keep evolving in the time that we're here. Mm -hmm. And that takes effort and it takes um, conscious thought. And sometimes a coach can really help you with that. Okay. So I think what a coach can do, what a performance coach can do, is if nothing else, uh, make some time in your diary to commit to you. Mm. And that's what I find often happens with clients, is that they have uh, made themselves, it's a bit like having a personal trainer at the gym. You, you, you go to the gym because you've made a commitment to somebody else, or you're paying them some money to help you do something. So often I think, so that's where I think a coach a performance coach can be really helpful is you're making a commitment that you want to be better at something and you're giving some money which for me is a sort of it you know it's, it's a it's a more than just a um a casual arrangement it's i'm making a commitment to be better at this and i want you to help me do it mm -hmm. can't we do this on our own i think some people can definitely do it on their own um I think, though, that um, most, if you look at the world and how people get better at things, you know, if you look at sport, for example, um, or you look at my world of performing arts, most people have somebody behind the scenes that is helping you evolve and get better at your skill. Um, I think it's a very special person who can do that completely on their own. I think if you've got a tribe that's doing the same sort of thing, mm -hmm. then you, and that power of that tribe <laughs> um, going on that journey together so that you're, you're, you're sort of accountable to the group, not just yourself. I think there's something very powerful in that accountability. Mm -hmm. And I think it's rare for people to improve or stretch to their real limit on their own. No, I definitely agree with you that <clears throat> For example, um, the first marathon I ran, my friend Egan trained me to run that marathon. And Egan's Royal Marine Special Forces, or ex-Royal Marine Special Forces. Um, in fact, he won't like me saying that because you are never an ex-Royal Marine Special Forces. No, you're Forces. not. My you business partner is exactly the same. You, you just retire. Yeah. You are you're, always a Marine. Once a Marine, always, always a Marine. Always a Marine. <laughs> you just retire. 
And so he was training me and he'd turn up at six o'clock in the morning uh, to take me out on runs and for training sessions. And the reality is like everything that he was taking me through in those training sessions, I could have got off the internet or, you know, got from a book. It was the fact that he was turning up at six o'clock in the morning, whether it was minus five or raining or snowing outside, waiting for me to go out on a training session. And the other thing is you just don't say no to a Royal Marine. <laughs> so it's like, okay, all right, yes, I'm going to do it. And I think that's the key thing. It's accountability and support. I guess the big lesson I've learned, and one of the things that, that, that is really beneficial about having a coach, role model, or mentor, is someone that is giving you uh, accountability mm. and support and, <clears throat> and, and feedback. Um, because we could do it on our own, as you said, but the reality is if there's people around you or a person around mm. you giving you that feedback, accountability and support, the chances are you're going to be significantly more likely to follow through with your own commitment. Completely agree. And I think actually self-awareness is hugely unreliable. Yeah. Actually. And it changes on a daily basis it as well. It absolutely does. Yeah. Depending on how well you slept or how hydrated yeah. you are, yeah. how you feel about yourself and what you're likely to do. Those days when you're tired yeah. is when you're going to make the poor food choices, is when yeah. you're more likely to stay up watching nonsense on TV, is when yeah. you're going to have those extra few cups of coffee. Yeah, and we have great skill at making the story fit why we did it, mm -hmm. which yeah. is not the same as having somebody as an external force going, why did you do that? Or, you know, is, was, that, was that a useful investment of your time? Or is there a better way? <laughs> and is there a better way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tell me about the work that you do in schools and your vision. I know you've got a background as a teacher, as you mentioned. So what did that teach you? And why now do you want to bring this work into schools? What it taught me is that I think, and I think um, there is a lot more happening in schools now around this, this area, but certainly when I was teaching, it was very content-based, uh, it was very module-based, it was very exam-focused, um, which is right and proper because that's the currency of how you <laughs> get onto the next stage. However, where I felt we could have done a lot more um, is helping everything we've just talked about, basically, helping young people have ways to manage themselves, mm. um, particularly when they're feeling pressure, whatever that pressure might be, whether it's peer pressure, whether it's society pressure, whether it's you know comparison fatigue. You know, I, I, somebody said to me, a 25 year old said to me a few months ago, you know, forget decision fatigue, it's comparison fatigue that's, that's burning me out, Sarah. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think there, and I know just with my own children, there's just so much distraction. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, um, I would like, well there's two things I'd really like. I'd like schools to be paying as, uh, and I, sh I know some of them are, so, th and I know there's a lot going on in mindfulness, there's a lot of great stuff going in there, but I would love to do the shed method. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would love to help young people have some practical ways of recognizing and being a scientist on their own behavior and being curious about how they're reacting and choosing to react differently and mm. giving them some real practical tips to experiment with so that they can make the choices that they want to choose, to, they want to choose, they want to make. Um, and secondly, I think you, you made the point earlier on, Neil, about a career advice. I mean, I had exactly the same experience. You know, I filled out a few questions. I think they told me I could be you know, an air hostess and a gynecologist or something like that, I can't remember. At uh, the same time? Yeah. Well, Split was, career? Well, I, I was told that I should be um, a, a computer uh, a technician <laughs> and I'm probably the least technically gifted person. It's like, I don't know where they get this information no, from. I'm pretty sure they go in the back room, they've got one of those magical eight balls that they just shake yeah. it up and this is the answer. Because it's probably the worst career advice that I could I have been given. I know. And it happens in one section. And I, I think... I mean, if funnily enough, there's a few of my clients who've asked me to work with their young young children, uh, teenagers who have either become disaffected in one area of school or they're unclear about what they want to do, and in and I've just done the the personal journey work with them, hmm. which is again outlined in the book, which is basically helping young people understand where they've come from, banking their successes, you know, like hmm. building their own personal trophy cabinet. You know, when have you done well? When have you done something you feel proud of? Let's mark it. Let's understand some of the strengths that are coming out of those proud moments. That's the sort of work that I would love to do more with young people. So they start to create their own trophy cabinet, mm -hmm. which they can tap into for a force for good. And then think, right, in 10 years time, tell me, what are you doing? You know, uh, what might you be, who are you seeing? What's the impact you're having? And just give, letting them dream a bit about what a 10 year vision might look like. That's all I've done with these young people of, of the clients that I've worked with. 
and and it's been really helpful for them because then you go okay so now back to present what can you now do in the next two years of your schooling life that's going to take you towards that vision uh, i'm literally sort of grinning from ear to ear <laughs> to hear you say that because you know for me growing up the only thing that i was putting in my cabinet was all the failures and the things that didn't go right and that's the things that I was constantly reminded of and that was pre-Facebook and pre-social media now you know kids basically on a daily basis are reminded of how they're not good enough and how they don't match up to this airbrushed picture-perfect image of reality and you know it's sad for me to say this but the main cause of death for 15 to 29 year old on planet earth today is suicide a lot of people don't know that mm. because the world that they live in it just doesn't match up to how they feel they should be showing up and there are many youths that are just getting to the point where they that they they seek the ultimate permanent solution to a temporary problem mm. and it's it's sad to think that you, you know we've got so many kids walking around feeling disillusioned disaffected lonely disconnected and the more virtually connected you know the more technologically connected we are the less socially connected we are so that's that's really 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 powerful and i think there are some young people that are really making inroads on this and have got a real strong role models and i think it's really about dialing them up a bit more giving them more of a voice Mm. giving them more airtime. um you know there's some movements that are happening which i think are very exciting and we just need to try and Mm. you know shine the light on the success and the things that are working i think you're completely right and what i mean i see this in corporations all the time we do as a team as well that there's a lot of focus on what's not working and that has an energetic effect and an energetic impact and um i think i think there's a lot to be said for actually being a bit more forensic around where things are working absolutely and that's the thing is we tend to focus on the things that don't work and not celebrate successes little things that we've done over the last couple of years we've put in a gratitude jar it's just like a, a jar that sits in the reception area and you you can just put in a note and say i'm grateful to duncan because he came in and set the room up for me this morning yeah. uh, because i was running a little bit late you know little things like that when we read that out once a quarter uh, and you've literally got a stack yeah. of gratitude notes in there Little things like that just can make such a massive difference. Or the weekly meeting where everybody talks about what was my win for the week and who do I want to big up in the team. Because we spend a lot of time when things don't go right. So forensically dissecting that bit by bit. and Where did it go wrong? Why did it go wrong? Who's to blame? And the rest of it. But we don't spend enough time talking about the things that work well. It goes back to that, 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 that the earlier conversation around purpose and passion yeah. and turning up for work, knowing the person standing either side of you has got your back and we're fighting for each other and we believe in the reason that we turn up every day. Yeah. And you know, if we can start to create that, not just within our organisations, but within you know, our community, society, mm-hmm. school, mm-hmm. the rest of it, we suddenly start to transform society. I was on a stage... Um, chairing a conference a couple of weeks ago, Matt Elliott, who's the people director for Virgin, uh, he got up in front of 250 of some of the most senior business leaders in the whole of the UK, and he said, we can't wait for politicians and, and, and political leaders to change society, it's up to us. Uh, and starting with the business community, which then affects everybody that works with those organisations that take it back into their local communities, uh, and also like schools as well, you know, head teachers have got a massive responsibility <coughs> massive. because ultimately the you know, it's not just the children they affect but the children are then taking it back into their homes and again that affects the communities and sadly we we're finding ourselves in a system now where a lot of teachers have forgotten why they became teachers in the first place and I'm, this is not me saying this is teachers that that, that, that i've worked with have said that, that, that they've lost connection with why they started doing what they do in the first place because they got so bogged down with the bureaucracy and the the, the paperwork and the, the the stress of being in the teaching profession. Well, that's partly why I left teaching. It was not. It was because I was being told how to teach. Talk to me about your vision with schools. What is it that you hope to achieve? And the what, what is the importance of teachers being able to engage our young people, and what this will mean for future generations, creativity, business leadership. You know, going back to that point, as Matt Elliott said, that you know he wants the business community to change the, the world. Mm. What is your thoughts about sort of reaching teachers and, and schools um, regarding sort of being able to change the future? So I think it's twofold. I think you said it there. It's about the teachers and the and the, the school whole school community. So, you know, I, I would love some of the principles of the shed method to be embedded in the way that schools operate, like, um, 
you know, doing something around celebration, understanding the me journey, um, investing time so children, young people can start to work out, okay, this is my goal at the moment, let's just keep revisiting maybe every term, mm. right? You set, you've made your personal journey, how can you, uh, what are you doing this term in support of it? So that it becomes more like, and it might have exam results, I'm sure it will have exam results in it, but it's in service to a purpose of what you want to do in your life, which may of course change. Um, but have some conversations around that, and this—I mean, uh, this may well be going on. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm very conscious that there'll be teachers listening to this, thinking that's what they're already doing. And I'm sure they are in some pockets. Um, but I think it's not just the children; it's also helping the ch- helping the teachers m- manage their energy. In an, I mean, I, having been a teacher and then gone into corporations, I do believe that teachers in challenging comprehensive. They are the most extraordinary leaders you will ever find. The ones that are leading those classrooms in the way that is giving those 30 kids um, a sense of who they can be and achievement. When you can manage a classroom of that dif- of that sort of uh, difference with, you know, sometimes, I mean, in the school I taught at, there were you know 149 different languages spoken in that school. There were different needs for every single individual in the classroom. It's a big school for a classroom leader to, to lead those people. And, you know, sometimes I sit in corporations and I think, you think that person is difficult in your team? Come with me. <laughs> Meet this teacher who's dealing with this on a daily basis, you know, hour after hour after hour. And I think helping teachers really celebrate the fantastic work that they are doing and giving them the skills and the tools to make sure that they can lead in the way they want to lead, manage themselves, have their, you know, their, their own learning space so that they can keep uh, evolving and connect to why they're doing this because you know they're certainly not getting paid for doing it particularly very much compared with the rest of you know lots of corporations so it is a but most people choose to teach because of a real desire to make a difference mm. for young people in the world and that's what brings them into the profession it's yeah. I think it's important that we keep them in the profession because obviously we're losing a lot of teachers now by giving them back that kind of the inspiration the tools and the ability to do the job well and inspire young minds Particularly, given some of the things you said there, obviously we're dealing with you know significant diversity issues in the modern yeah. schooling environment, and yes, obviously nationalities in, in Britain. We have you know hundreds of different nationalities uh, present in, in 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 many British, particularly in London, uh, um, London schools. But it, add to that now, obviously, the, the sexual diversity. The last count, I think it was seventy-one different gender pronouns, and people have got access to this information. Um, I genuinely can't keep up. Um, mm. That, in addition to that, obviously we've got the generational diversity. Um, mm-hmm. in, in in a typical schooling environment, you probably have four, if not five, different generations. Yeah. yeah and obviously, the, the the students will typically be Generation Z. The the, the, yeah. the NQTs may yeah. well be millennials, and then yeah. you've got you know going up to head teachers. If they're slightly older head teachers, you may even have some baby boomers in there. And, that, that these are people that have grown up in a completely different world. You know, some of them won't remember a time before Facebook and the iPhone. Um, and, and that, for me, means that, that their outlook, their perspective, their way of engaging, their way of connecting, their way of communicating is very, very different. Yeah. So we need to consider such a broad... Di- broad range of different diversity needs that we mm. have in the modern... Not just workplace, but in the modern mm. school. And... And unless we're equipping people, uh, particularly teachers, with the tools to be able to handle that, mm. um, you're going to find there are a lot of people that are disengaged. And it goes back to that point of, of, of value. If you're disengaged, you're not going to feel valued. And how many kids today are being undervalued or disengaged by the educational system, which effectively was designed 250-odd years ago yeah. to create factory workers? Yeah. It's And it hasn't changed enough to keep <clears throat> pace with where we are in modern life. So where does the work that you do sort of fit in with that and how could that offer people sort of the inspiration and the tools to be able to engage better? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I certainly learnt, I mean, I talk about my 12 years in education as being my MBA because I learnt so much about myself and I learnt so much about human beings, basically, um, that uh, what I I talk about this in the book, but I think it's relevant, is that when I had a very, very challenging uh, lesson with a year nine class, where Wayne told me in no uncertain terms that my lesson was boring. Um, <laughs> I had, you know, I had, I was a young teacher, I'd done a beautiful lesson plan, I would have passed all of the, you know, if I, uh, the, I would have ticked the boxes on my lesson plan, right? But it didn't fit this individual in front of me at that time. And I was having to make an assessment, as many teachers do in that moment, about 
am I sending this person out? <laughs> am I, what am I doing with this person who's being very, very rude to me in front of 29 other people? Um, and the thing that saved me, Neil, was a breathing technique that had got me through playing grade, grade seven exam. Mm -hmm. You know, basically my violin teacher had said, you have to steady your bow, you have to hold that violin when you are nervous, right? So let's work on your state management to do that. I know you know the songs, uh, the, the tunes, I know you know your pieces, but actually we need now to invest some work on you managing your state under pressure, mm -hmm. right? So I had been drilled in that. Um, and so I think what happened in that moment was the drilling of the breathing that had got me through my tough exam, violin exams, just kicked in. So I could breathe, mm -hmm. which, which, which gave me some sense of choice so that I could assess what I was going to do with this person. And actually in this particular moment, I said, Wayne, I really didn't get up in the morning to be, as he described, effing boring. Um, I, dis I got up because I wanted to teach this class. So tell me how I can make this less and less boring. Mm. And what happened then was a really transformational moment for that, my relationship with that class. But that took guts. And that took courage from my point of view, but I only got that by giving myself that moment of choice. Mm. And so I think there's a whole thing around pressure practice, not just for teachers, but but I, I think, you know, you asked me about teaching. I think, mm. I think particularly newly qualified teachers, I'm not sure they get enough on state management mm. um, and uh, in challenging situations. So how do they manage themselves? Because that is contagious to then what you get back from the young people and you're modeling something then. Absolutely, but that's this isn't just true in teaching. No, it's this not. This is a life skill yeah. that a lot of people just they, they don't know how to cope with the pressure and demands that we uh, that, that we're subjected to in life. And those pressure and demands are increasing day by day. Yeah. The pace of life is quickening at a rate that most of us just can't keep up with. And the first thing most people do when they open their eyes in the morning is they look at a mobile phone. And the last thing they do at night before they go to sleep is they're looking at a screen. In fact, the University of Greenwich report, and I cite this stat way too much. That 38% of smartphones in Britain, this study was done six or seven years ago, that 38% of smartphones in Britain have got fecal matter on them because the people are sat on the toilet checking their phone. So we don't switch off long enough to use in the bathroom in peace. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the challenges to everything that you've said today is, uh, there's two terms I'm gonna offer you, it's uh, attention management. It's not time management and stress management. It's like holding someone's attention for more than mm -hmm. five seconds. And um, a new term that was offered to me recently, infobesity. Uh, so mm. obesity is when you eat too much, but info obesity is when you have way too much information and you are literally sort of bursting at the seams. And most people have way too much information that they can cope with. And there's more and more information being churned at a rate of knots. If it wasn't bad enough to have it on your phone, now we've got like devices on our wrists that are ringing, bleeping and vibrating. Some people have now started to get to the point where they're implying chips into their, their bodies. Mm. That's not science fiction, it's here, you know. In Sweden, like people have got payment chips that have been put into their hands so they don't need to carry on a credit card around anymore. So how do we actually get people to stop and focus when we've got tech companies that are just increasing mm. constantly the amount of information that's been subjected to that, yeah. uh, that's been thrown at us and we can't hold our attention for more than a few seconds? I completely agree. And, and, and because of that, we need to apply some effort and mm. make some very, very strong choices about how we want to live. And that takes effort to build, build the habit to do it. Um, and so I, you know, that, that is fundamentally what I do most of the time, is work with people to develop their pressure practice. And actually, you know, when you go to, like my background in terms of performance, you have a pressure practice. You know, you have it incremental pressure increased so that by the time you go on stage, you are ready. And yet what we're doing in our life is hitting these moments with no, no sense of preparation. And that was when your dog brain will completely take over. So the story that comes into my head as you say this, it was the, the remember there was the kind of the, the random terror attack that happened on the train in France or Belgium or something. Yes. And there was a couple of off-duty Marines from America that were just traveling around Europe. And this whole thing took place and some crazy guy pulls out a gun and everybody goes into freeze and doesn't know what to do. And these guys just, they knew instinctively what, what to, to do, do, kicked into action, did what they need to, yeah. didn't even think, didn't yeah. even, you know, didn't even skip a heartbeat. And it's because they've been so drilled. It's when that happened, it's like, this is my job. I know exactly what to do. However, most of us are going through life and we know we're going to face challenges because it's the world we live in and there's crazy things happening around us all the time. And But most of us are not preparing for how are we going to be able to cope with the inevitable changes and challenges that the future is going to bring. Yeah. 
And that's what we need to help people focus on is saying, right, so I mean, I will often ask a client, right, you've got two weeks in your diary, open it, tell me, what really matters in there for you? Mm. Where are your moments that matter? And I make them circle them. And so I say, so okay, so where's the preparation for that? And of course, they haven't got any preparation for it. They're just hoping that they'll, it'll be okay. Um, and that's a high risk strategy, really. I mean, I might be, but you don't know how you've been okay in that moment. I, I'm chuckling because, you know, I could have circled around our, our time together this morning and the intention was there. Obviously, did read the brief um, this morning. Uh, but it's that the best laid intentions and plans can often go to waste because there's just not enough hours in the day. And there's always this intention that I'll do the, do this you know, a few days in advance. And I remember a point where six or seven years ago, if I had an important thing that I was gonna be doing, turning up to a client, doing a presentation, um, just chairing a conference, I would literally be reading the notes and the prep documents a week in advance. And then as life got busier, like I had one of those kind of things happening every few days, it would generally happen like a couple of days before. And it got to the point where it's like almost every day there was something major happening. So if I was lucky, it would be the day before or the night before. It's now got to the stage where there are times where I literally I'll be on my way there in the taxi, mm. reading the notes on the way there, because there just isn't enough time in enough headspace to mm. absorb that much information. And I think that's one of the things I'm finding in life is that the river of life that we find ourselves in is getting faster and faster <clears> day by day. And the biggest challenge that we face is most people can never get out of the river to stand on the bank, mm. to stop and take a breath and consider how better to navigate that river because we're just stuck there. And we're so, in it. Yeah, and, and most people are getting ripped under by the current. And unless we're taking those moments every so often to stand on the bank, to get yourself out of the river, whether that's to take the dog for a walk or meditate or uh, mm. you, you know, like have a bath or mm. go do some exercise, go to the gym, go for a... Whatever it is, mm. something for you. Spend some time just with the kids. Mm. And I, I, I fear that as we keep dialing up the pressure and increasing the amount of demand that people are being subjected to and expecting people to squeeze more into every day and then offer them comparisons, other people who are doing everything mm. and you're clearly not doing enough, mm. which is put, again increasing that pressure, that sadly we've got this unrealistic expectation of who we should be and how we should live mm. our lives. And that's why people need to stop to go faster, if that's what they want to do. Interesting. So Sarah, I approach you, and I'm having a bit of a tough, challenging time. I'm out of balance, not really looking after myself. How would you help me or help me within my organisation? So I think the first thing I would do is ask you when you're at your best. Mm -hmm. And to share a few proud stories. Or times when you found something effortless. Okay. And I'd probably start there. And what I tend to notice when people start to then interrogate that or just describe it, they something happens to them so I can then feed back to them. Oh, I notice, you know, your body's shifted or uh, what's happening now as you're talking about these things. So I'm starting to help them connect their state with that example. And then I might ask them, so um, what specifically would you like to be better at? And that's a really important question because otherwise there's this whole overwhelm of mm. I'm not doing this, I can't do this, da, 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 da. So what is it that you want to be better at, I would say to you, Neil? And sometimes they start quite high level and then um, I would just ask another question around why does that matter? Um, what would be achieved if you were to do that? So they start to get a bit connected to the thing and sometimes that then shifts. So actually, it's not that, it's this. This is what I actually want to get better at. So we're starting to interrogate the the thing they, they really want to attack or want to build a better habit for. And then I might say to them, um, okay, so give me an example coming up where you want to be like this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's identifying the moment that matters. And, and I incorporate, I might call it a critical impact opportunity. It's a time when actually you want to turn up and be your best self. Mm -hmm. um, so they might just describe that. And then, um, and then we would work on the before plan, the during plan, and the post plan to that particular example. Because what I find, Neil, is that people are in, often in overwhelm with all the things they want to do or the things they want to be. So um, the way you help a human 
humans crave progress hey so if you can give them an opportunity a very specific opportunity where they're going to apply a practice they're going to apply a little bit more effort they're going to shine a light on this specific thing and then we review it afterwards then they start to bank some of the things that they can do to make a difference small the, 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 everything you said sounds amazing except for me the big challenge is I totally agree humans crave progress they crave growth yeah they crave pleasure and you can show them how that can be achieved but for very few people will they be committed in the path to doing what they knew is going to make a difference you could tell people switch your show phone off 90 minutes before you go to bed get up in the morning and you know before you look at your phone do some stretching do some yoga go for a walk do some more exercise um, you know, how, stop drinking coffee at two o'clock. All of these things, where you can back up with data and you can get people to experiment with this, and they themselves will know how much better they feel when they follow this this kind of protocol. But for very few people, do they stay committed to that path? I agree. And that, for me, is the biggest challenge. Yeah. So it's about um, helping them understand where they're going to get the fuel to apply the effort for that mm. small difference. Okay. So that's when you might go back to say, so how are you going to make sure you're strong enough? to do that and that might go back to shed that might go back something else but it's also um defining almost like um, a little plan in the book i talk about um the habit rhyme <laughs> which is will mm-hmm. why does this matter we know that will on its own isn't enough you've just described that it mm. isn't enough i know i need to do it i don't do it um so really defining why it matters to them and tapping into the purpose and if they can um describe a beyond self-interest purpose that's even stronger. So for example, I'm working with someone at the moment, she is attached to her phone. She's um, a a very senior woman in a corporation and uh, she says to me, I I, I need to be at home for my children, but I find it incredibly difficult not to keep working. Mm. So what we've done is we've worked on a plan where she gives her phone to her children when she walks in through the door. So they're part of the plan, right? Amazing. So you have to, and her children really matter to her, right? So if she's making a promise to them, that ups the ante on the mm. on the worthwhile effort so um will why does it matter what is the specific skill so it's asking them also what what's the thing you really want to get better at so if it, if it is about the phone when's the moment and you'll know this from nlp when's the moment when your dog brain's likely to want the reward of keeping on working mm. so where, where's the interruption you need so for her it was as i walk through the front door i am going to give my the skill is religiously giving my phone to my children when I return home. The drill is every single day. <laughs> so it can't just happen once. It has to happen for a long period of time. And then it becomes habit. Well, we hope, we mm. hope, but we're testing it, we don't know. Uh, then there's ice in the will, will, skill, drill, fill and Jill, I call it just because it rhymes, but who is it that, you know, their ki- her kids are her fill and Jill. We all need, we talked earlier about how it really helps if we've got someone helping us stay accountable to mm. the the effort we say we want to apply. So who in your tribe can be a useful person? Sometimes I'm that person, but sometimes it's useful to have a person who's done it before. Mm-hmm. So if you want to um, be better at disconnecting, who in your life is really good at disconnecting? And that might be quite a useful person, mentor to have. So someone who's seen the film before, right? Mm-hmm. Someone like, um, and that, so there's different types of people who can help you. Then make it fun. Because mm. if you don't make it fun, so how can your children, I'm saying to her, make it like, like I, it was so wonderful walking up the stairs today and seeing um, a placard saying, welcome Sarah, please knock loudly because there's dogs likely to you know, jump on you. That was just really, it did something for me as I walked up those stairs. So it's what we've done with her, this client and her children is, you know, what's the ceremony when mm. she responds? Right, you know, it's like Arianne Huffington says, you know, make a bed for your phone that you can put your your phone into your duvet mm. before you it, uh, ritualize it, make it fun, make mm. it something that you actually quite want to do. You can play. She's playing with this with her children. So take the pressure, make it a fun experiment that we can see, and and then we have to review it regularly. Mm. How successful are we against the plan? Mm. Um, but it's one specific thing that she's trying. So. That's what I'd say. And I, I like the fact that it's it's one thing because sometimes we get overwhelmed with there's so many different things to do and you, you've got this wonderful laid out plan and it involves what you eat and you know how you prepare for sleep and sleep hygiene and exercise and the rest of it. Mm. Then you accidentally have a cream cake and that one cream cake derails the whole train and how many people that I've come across 
they make there's one indiscretion and it ruins their whole plan and then there's just like oh well sod it I've screwed up now so mm. I'm just going to go back to the way things were so I think it's great that if we can start one thing get that right and then build it and you know even if it means you can only do 15 minutes worth of exercise it's better than no minutes of exercise even if you can just get off of your chair and walk for five minutes yeah absolutely or you can you can't shut your phone off for like the two hours before bed which would be optimal but even if it's like half an hour to start with and you build up you can't do an hour's meditation maybe you can do 10 minutes yes a little and often i think and to build that habit to kind of build the muscle i think it's so more more beneficial than trying to get it all perfect on the first on the first go yes and then you're also encouraging all of us to be um this back to scientist on your own behavior you know when Mm -hmm. does it work when when were those nights where you managed to really easily give your phone over to your children what happened just before that to allow you to do that so it becomes a really intriguing experiment so just from talking to you i feel inspired to even go back and do some of the things that i'm doing uh, a little bit better and just reevaluate some of my approaches so i can already start to see there's benefit in talking to a coach but why is there still resistance? Do you feel that some business owners might feel um, speaking to a coach to seeing as a sign of failure, that I'm not good enough particularly? Do you feel there's still resistance and do you feel there might be some barriers that would prevent people from putting their hand up and saying, yeah, I could really use some help and support from a coach? I think it's moved on loads. Wonderful. Um, I think when I first began coaching, there was sometimes companies where they saw it as a remedial in. Um, investment and I think now it's much more around improving Mm. um, and benefiting and being um, making it an asset for the business so and and I think also um, Neil it's very helpful for a client to um, think about how performance that's why I like performance coaching because it's results focused Mm. and um, anyone in the sports world or the performing arts world you know they all have something someone that's helping them be better so i think it's the way it's positioned and i think also fundamentally it's whether the client um has a a really clear sense of what they want to get from it but you know coaching and personal development is still a relatively new business here in the uk you know over the last 20 years we've started to see this grow and evolve do you feel we're going to get to a point where it will be normal to have like a life coach, business coach, performance coach, in the same way you'd have a personal trainer to help you to get fit or someone to help you to improve your diet? I think quite possibly, and I think it's it's heading that way already. I think, you know, there's very few organisations who, who don't talk about coaching as, um, as a support uh, for um, leadership. I mean, because that t- tends to be what I'm dealing with. Um, it's, I think it's much more common, and I can quite imagine a world like that. Amazing. So you know, let's just talk about your big vision. Why do you do what you do? Why do you get out of bed every morning? Because fundamentally, I love helping people achieve more than they thought was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been inspired by people who've helped me achieve more than I thought is possible. And I constantly want to do things. I didn't think I could write a book. I didn't think I could trek in the Himalayas. Um, And every time I do these things and I achieve them, it's very um, fulfilling and hugely um, energizing actually. So um, if I can help other people and support other people in that endeavor, why would you not do that? Absolutely, and I guess there's a significant ripple effect of the work that you do. What what is that ripple effect? What's the impact that you want to make in the world? How will the world remember Sarah Milner? Oh God, what a question! Um, I would love to um, be a force for good mm-hmm. in more than one area. I mean, by that I mean a, a bigger community than I'm currently operating in. Um, I would love the principles. And I suppose the pedagogy of of what lies underneath Mm. the shed method um, to be part of the way human beings um, evolve and um, and and that people become purpose led. Mm -hmm. That's that's very exciting for me. I find myself gravitating more and more to organisations that are purpose led feeling less satisfied working in organizations that are not purpose-led absolutely so i i think um i think in the current world that we operate in it's going to be fundamentally important and human beings are brilliant and we need to bring the best of ourselves 
to everything that we do. And if I can be, and if the principles that we in my team um, are trying to help people with can go viral, <laughs> um, that would be brilliant. I'm going to leave this by saying that we need to get you back. I think we've only just scratched the surface of all the different things That's I'd like to talk to you about. You, yeah. um, so we will definitely arrange for that. How can people find out more? Oh, they can uh, go to our website, Coaching Impact. Um, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, I have a Twitter handle, Sarah Milne Rowe. Mm -hmm. um, they can go onto the Shed Method. Uh, there's a Facebook page of the Shed Method. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn as Sarah Milne Rowe. Perfect. And your book is called The Shed Method, available in all good bookshops, I understand. It is, and the paperback's coming out at the end of December. Fantastic. I've very much enjoyed reading that. <laughs> Thank you. Please be sure to like, comment, share. If you've got any questions for Sarah, put them in the comments. We'll make sure that they get to her. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed talking. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to the Life Changing Conversations podcast with Neil Shah. This podcast was produced by Change Your World Events in collaboration with the Stress Management Society. Like, comment and share and keep the conversation going. Hashtag LCC podcast.